This is a reading from uh, chapter 25 of Exodus, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you, you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to you. Would you please pray with me? Father, again, it is our desire um, to not just be those who hear your words spoken, but to be those who truly hear you speak to us. And so, Lord, we ask again that you would be shaping us, that you would be renewing us, that you would more and more be making us into the people of Christ that you have called us to be. So we ask that you would help us to listen. We ask that you would help me to speak faithfully and clearly, that you would be pleased and that we would be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the moment you've been waiting for. I am preaching on the tabernacle. I don't know if you know this, but this is just the first nine verses of a very long section. And really what you have here. Our blueprints. That's, that's really what you have in the next chapters. Uh, we've just, if you might remember last week, this was a, a climactic moment where God and his people make a covenant with each other. Now God says, because you are my people and I'm your God, I want to live among you. That's what we just read, right? Uh, verse 8 says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And that word tabernacle is just a fancy word for home or, or tent. God is saying, I want you to build me a tent so that I can live right in the middle of you. And that's what we have next. As I said, what you really have are blueprints for chapter upon chapter. You've got dimensions. You've got building materials. He names contractors. He speaks of the different fabrics that should be used both for curtains and for the priest's outfits, different gems, even the ingredients for the incense. It goes into great detail. And it goes long. If you've ever tried doing a through the Bible in a year, this is when you start slowing down because it is literally 13 chapters of blueprints. 427 verses. If you're curious, Romans is 433. So it's basically a Romans worth of tabernacle details about ephods and, and linens and that sort of thing. And so the fact that it is that long shows us that it must have some importance. God would never have included all of this in his word 
if it wasn't important for us. But for the life of us, we cannot understand why. What is this about? Why is there so much information here giving us the details, the dimensions of a tent that, of course, no longer even exists? I think to understand what's going on here, it's useful just to even think for a moment about the way that, that structures with intentionality work, how they can communicate, how they can shape a people. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., you have probably visited the Vietnam Veterans War Memorial. Um, if you have, you'll know it's you know, this long black wall over 200 feet, kind of in a V shape. The highest part at the very top is about 10 feet, and then it kind of tapers to about 18 inches on the edges, and it's kind of almost cut out of the ground. Ground is on one side. On the other side, in this black wall, there are 58,000 plus names of those who died in the Vietnam War. And, and this, this shape, the designer said, is supposed to remind us, it's reminiscent of, of a scar that's healing. The black in the shape is, is, is supposed to also be a hint of a coffin, connoting, of course, death. And even as you look at the names inscribed on this black wall, the black is made to be shiny, reflective, so that even as you see the names, you see your own face at the very same time. Every aspect of this memorial is made with intentionality to communicate something, to help us as a nation remember and understand and grieve over what took place in the Vietnam War. It's a structure that is designed to shape us, and it does. Well, in the same way, when God is providing instructions for the tabernacle, he is giving these detailed instructions to communicate, to, to shape his people. I mean, he explicitly says, as we notice in verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern, that's how you need to make it. Every detail is important to God because every detail is meant to communicate something to his people, to form them, to shape them. And really the heart of understanding what is going on here, I think, in the tabernacle is to realize that in the tabernacle, we have God showing that he is going to reclaim, redeem his world. That he is taking back his creation. And you see this in a number of ways. One of the most noticeable things that we see if we're paying close attention to these multiple chapters is the frequent use of the number seven. So it takes seven days for the priest to be ordained, seven days for the altar to be cleansed and to be ready. Perhaps most notably, even if it's the most subtle detail, is on seven different occasions when God is giving these instructions, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, and then he says, this is how it should be made. And the Lord said, seven times, reminding us of Genesis 1, and God said, and it was made, and God said, and it was made. And on the seventh time that it says, and the Lord says, he says, you shall take a day of rest on the seventh day, just like with Genesis 1. And so the point of this is we're supposed to understand that this, this building of a tabernacle according to God speaking and it taking place is like a mini act of creation. It's a return to Genesis 1. 
that impression is reinforced when, when the way that he speaks of the Spirit. Back in Genesis 1, you have the Spirit hovering over the waters, implying that it, the power of the Spirit is what brings this world into being. So also here in these instructions, God says, and I will give my Spirit to the craftsmen so that when they make it, they can make it skillfully. The Spirit is bringing about this creation. And the outcome of these plans, as God speaks again and again, is a tabernacle that is like a mini Eden. So in the tabernacle, in this tent itself, there is a lamp, but that lamp is in the shape of a tree, and many scholars say that that tree is supposed to remind us of the tree of life that is in the Garden of Eden. Guarding the way to the very holy of holies is a curtain that's not just colorful, but it has inscribed down it or, you know, stitched in it pictures of cherubim. And the only time before then that we remember hearing about cherubim is at the end of Genesis 3, as after Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, there are then cherubim, fiery, angelic creatures guarding the way back to Eden. And so also they're guarding the way here. The tabernacle is a mini Eden. The whole making of the tabernacle is a creation event. And what God is communicating, what we're supposed to understand is that God in this tabernacle making is reclaiming territory for himself. See, when sin took place, when Adam and Eve sinned, creation was broken. And Eden and all of its beauty and all of its glory was lost. And now God says, I am bringing Eden back. This, this territory, this area that is mine is going to be according to my will. It's going to be once again the way it's supposed to be. It is a beachhead, an entry point for God to bring about the things that were always supposed to be but that are now broken. And in some ways I think we can think of the tabernacle and its courtyard kind of like a model home. You know, sometimes it's not usually coming around here because there's not really any undeveloped land, but sometimes when a land is being developed with a housing development, there are these pictures of, you know, these are the houses that are going to be built, you know, by this, by this. And sometimes what they'll do is they'll just build one house. And so anyone who wants to know the kinds of houses that are being built in the housing development can just tour this one house because it is anticipating all that's going to take place. Well, in the same way, this tabernacle is meant as a kind of model home for Israel. As they look, as they see the kind of thing that is built there to understand this is what God is about. This is what God is doing. He is, he is reclaiming creation, bringing about the holiness that has always been intended. And as Israel sees this tabernacle, and as they understand that they should realize is only phase one, they as a people are kind of phase two. They are also to be kind of this, this tabernacle, this, this model people. Just as God reclaims this territory with the tabernacle, he is reclaiming his people, making them holy, so that all the world could come and see and walk around amongst the people of God and say, this is what God is doing, and be filled with awe. So the passage gives us this detailed account of the tabernacle, this Model home where God is saying, I am starting something new. This is what I'm doing. I am reclaiming the world, and it begins here. And I think what it's supposed to do for us is it's inviting us to kind of walk around in our imaginations through it, to explore. And as we explore and as we see, we're to recognize what God is doing, what matters to God, what God is bringing about so that we ourselves can be formed. 
So that's what I want us to do for a little while. Let's try to use our imagination. Some of our imaginations, you know, haven't gotten a lot of usage, so let's really kind of like, you know, you know, put some effort into it and try to imagine us exploring this tabernacle. So if you are joining with me in this moment and we're outside of the tabernacle, first you have to remember that we're probably in the middle of the wilderness. There's a camp all around us. There are hundreds of thousands of people with tents. But what we see in front of us is this long white wall, about eight feet high, so you can't see beyond it. And it goes all around. And even as you get to the entrance, that's all you see. It's, it's a white cloth. With every few feet, you've got these pillars, bronze in the bottom, silver on the top, about eight feet tall, that's holding up this curtain. And you really can't see beyond it. It is a boundary separating what's inside this wall from everywhere else. And so even as you get to the entrance, you can't see through. There's this screen that's, again, about eight feet high that blocks your vision that you can kind of walk around but right now, you don't see anything. It's, it's sacred space. And so as we walk down this long wall, we get to the entrance and we walk in, what is it that we notice? Well, the first thing I think we would be struck by is the symmetry, is the order of what we see in front of us. Because in front of us, as we go past the screen, what we notice is this dimension of you know, perfectly two by one, 150 feet long, which is about to the uh, parking lot, 75 feet wide, which is pretty much the end of the hallway to here, exactly a two by one ratio is the courtyard. And really that courtyard can be kind of divided in half. One half, one perfect square, has almost nothing in it. There are just two things. There is an altar that is about four feet high, about eight feet wide, that's of bronze for sacrificing the animals, and then a little bit beyond the altar, that's also of bronze, there's a basin, and everywhere else is just clear. But if we continued on to the second half, then we get to the tabernacle, which dominates the second half of this courtyard. It's, it, before us, we see this perfect square, about 15 feet high, so obviously higher than I can touch, about 15 feet wide. Also, blocked from our view because all we see is that red, blue, and purple screen in the same way that kind of was the entrance. But if for some reason we would be allowed to kind of step around the screen and kind of enter in, we would see a room that is exactly the same ratio as the courtyard. It's, it's two by one, whereas the courtyard was 150 feet by 75 feet. This room is, is 30 feet by 15 feet, also 15 feet high. And as we continue on, if we were to go beyond to the Holy of Holies, we would find a perfect cube, 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits, the same number as the Ten Commandments, which is 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. Everything is this perfect ratio of order. And it's not just in the dimensions that we see order. There's a consistency in the way that the metals are used, bronze on the outside, then silver, then gold, and the way that the colors are consistent. Even when it comes to the details of the priest's garments, everything is exactly, precisely ordered and structured. And that's no accident. God intended that because that is how God does things. If you remember in Genesis 1, how does God start, he divides the light from the darkness. He divides the, so, the sky from the sea. He divides the ground from the water. When he makes animals, he makes them according to their kind. He is a God who makes things with order, with structure. Or the New Testament explicitly says, our God is a God of order. And that's, that's important. 
Because only with order, with everything being ordered, can there be harmony. Have you ever been in a, a, a group project, maybe it's you're on a sports team or maybe it's work, where the goal is absolutely clear, and not only is the goal clear, but every single person's role is clear, so that when you are contributing, you know exactly how to contribute, and each person doing their job all is working towards a goal, there is a beautiful harmony that takes place when there is order. And of course, when there isn't order, when things are disordered, there isn't harmony. And that's what we so often experience in our world around us, isn't it? We experience disorder in the very fabric of creation and, and, and disease and, and natural disasters and parasites. We experience disorder in the fabric of society with, with injustice, with, with sexual disorder, with poverty. We experience disorder in ourselves as we at times pretend in our hearts to be God, being the center of the universe, self-centered. That's, that's disorder, and the result is conflict and suffering and disharmony. But as if we were to walk into the, the courtyard of the tabernacle, we would see God's declaration that he's saying, that is not what I am doing. What I am doing is I am a God of order where everything perfectly fits together. And as I rule and as my rule spreads across the world, I am bringing order to disorder. So that's the first thing we see. Now, if we are once again in our imaginations in this courtyard, you know, this long courtyard, and we're finally now approaching the tabernacle itself, we come to this second curtain. Perhaps the second thing that we notice is not just that there's symmetry and order, but there, there's beauty. I mean, we noticed it perhaps when we saw that first curtain back there of red, blue, and purple, rare, expensive dyes. And once again, there's red, blue, and purple exquisitely woven together in the screen that blocks the entrance to the tabernacle. And as we walk around it, we, we notice something else. Before we even see what's inside, we're, we're struck by a strong smell of these expensive spices and, and incense flowing from the inside of the, of the tabernacle. And as we come in, we're awestruck. Because everything we see, it seems, is gold. The, the beams that hold up the curtain and in the inside of this tabernacle are plated with gold. The, the, the lampstand, where you have seven shining lamps that are reflecting off all this gold, is, is shaped in the form of a tree done remarkably. And it's all of gold. The table on the other side is a table that's plated in gold, and then there's an altar on the end that's also plated in gold, and then on the very other side is a curtain. All around you are curtains, red, blue, and purple. But this curtain has these images of the cherubim done amazingly. And if you were to somehow be allowed, and no one is besides Moses and the high priest, to get on the other side of that curtain, you would see something remarkable. The Ark of the Covenant, this this. this box about two feet high, completely plated in gold, carrying the, the Ten Commandments. And the cover is gold carved, you know, a sculpture of gold of these two cherubim, essentially kind of holding the shape of a throne, because that's where God rules. Everything you see in this whole tabernacle is done with an attention to beauty. If the, if the priest were to come in and you were to see his expensive linen, the, the gems that he's covered by, the gold that he's covered by, you would be awestruck by even him. And all of that is intentional. 
When God speaks, he says, make holy garments for glory and beauty of the priests. When he commissions people to construct the tabernacle, he says he will give his spirit to enable them to be skillful craftsmen to make this remarkably. And this is not an accident. God intentionally invests every detail of this tabernacle with beauty because that is who God is. Again, when we think of creation, again and again when God speaks and makes things, he pauses to savor and speaks of how, and it was good, and the Lord saw that it was good. God savors the beauty of the fiery stars in the sky that he puts in the sky, of the, of the soaring eagle, of, of the waves crashing against the beach, of the quiet sunsets, of the amazing beauty in a human face. Because God is not just a God of order, he is a God of beauty. It's not enough to make this world so that it's a machine with every cog working just in the right way. When God made this world, he invested it with beauty and delight and joy. He created this world to be enchanting. And so also the tabernacle he made to be enchanting, entrancing, filled with beauty. Because this world is not how it's supposed to be. Uh, there is beauty, but there is ugliness, and we feel it all around. We see the ugliness of death. We see the ugliness of corruption. We see the ugliness of so many different things, and God is saying with his tabernacle, that is not how it will be. This is what it looks like when things are under my control. Not only are they perfectly ordered, but they are delightful. And as my order grows and as my rule grows, I am going to make all things beautiful once again. That also we see in the construction as we walk around the tabernacle. And finally, as we are now in the tabernacle, not in the most holy place, but just the holy place, one thing that we also would be struck with is how bright it is. Normally in a room that size, you'd only need one lamp to bright it, but this one has seven bright lamps, the seven bright lamps from that tree-like sculpture that I spoke of before. And God specifically commands that that there must always be oil. It says morning and night make sure the priests bring oil so that that light will always be shining and will never go out. It's important to God. And that's because God is a God of light. Again, if we go back to creation, what's the very first thing God says? Let there be light. And it says, and he saw that the light was good. The New Testament tells us that God is light, and in God there is no darkness at all. What is darkness in that day? Darkness, remember, when you don't have any lights, darkness is complete. Darkness is where things can happen in hiddenness, where evil can take place without anyone being punished because no one knows exactly who does it. Darkness is, is fear. Darkness is lostness. When people are walking in darkness, they don't know exactly where they're going. Scripture says our world is in darkness, and we feel that. We feel the lies that are going unexposed. We feel the ability of people to get away with doing what is wrong. We feel the confusion that surrounds us and that we're even a part of where we feel like we are in darkness and we don't know the way to go, and God says, that's not my way. 
And the tabernacle, he says, that light must always shine because my light always shine. I am the God who brings light to dispel darkness. I'm the God who brings truth. I'm the God who brings wisdom. And so this is how the tabernacle was meant to form the people of God as they step into the courts, as they hear this description in Exodus about the kind of building that God is making. They're to understand that God is a God who brings order. They look around and see God is a God who cares about beauty. They see glowing from the tabernacle and they realize that God is a God of light. And it's not supposed to just stop. Again, God's people are kind of the tabernacle 2.0. If we were to study all of the laws that God gives, we would realize that the very same things he invests in the tabernacle, he's investing in his people. He is establishing order in his people with his commands. We sometimes get confused by all of the rules about eating this and not eating that and doing this and not doing that. It's God educating his people, helping them to see the value of order. With, with the different commands involving justice and oppression and poverty, God is trying to remove the ugliness from society so that his people can be a beautiful people. And again and again, as he calls them to meditate on his law, he is seeking to fill his people with light, that they might be a wise people, exposing the deeds of darkness so that all might be brought into light and be filled with truth. And the desire is that as other people come and, and walk amongst the nation of Israel, and they see this people changed, this people newly created by the word of God, that they would see the glory of God and themselves be changed. That's why God speaks of his people as a holy people, a kingdom of priests. You, he says, are my temple, my tabernacle, that all the people might see my glory through you. Now, we already spoke last week and other weeks of how Israel failed miserably in their calling. Rather than being willing to be ordered by God's holy word, they sought disorder. Rather than being a people filled with light, they chose to walk in darkness and they became ugly. And so it's fitting that even as God's people crumbled, so also did God in judgment allow his temple, his tabernacle made permanent in Jerusalem, to crumble as well as a sign of judgment of the emptiness of God's people not doing what they were called to do. But the tabernacle that God gives here is more than just an expression of hope. It's a promise. It is God committing, saying, this is what I am going to do in this world. And so many centuries later, when Jesus comes, he is spoken of. We even saw this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's literally, and he tabernacled among us. Jesus becomes the tabernacle of God. Later on, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, saying, I am the temple. And if you think about his life, you see that in every detail. He is constantly bringing order where there is disorder. Where there is demons possessing man, which should not happen, he speaks and the demon must leave. Where there are storms and there should be silence, he speaks and the storm dissipates. Where there is ugliness, he brings beauty. When people are cast out of society, he brings the lepers back in, healing them. Where there is death, he brings life. Even where there is a wedding without wine, he brings beautiful wine. Because he brings beauty. And he says, I am the light of the world. He shines light into the darkness, exposing deeds of evil, summoning people to wisdom. He is 
the tabernacle. But he does more than the tabernacle did because the tabernacle just showed the way. But Jesus does more than just showing. Scripture says that when Jesus dies, in some ways this world dies with him. And when he rose again, something completely new was made. His, his resurrected body was not just a normal body. It was, it was kind of almost of a different substance, of a different world. The Bible says that in Christ's resurrection, a new creation began. And we're told that each of us, when we place our trust in Christ Jesus, says if anyone is in Christ, they also are a new creation. The very spirit who who brought this world into being, the very spirit who is a part of building the tabernacle, is now the spirit who is at work in your soul, creating this new territory, this new person that belongs not to this present world, but to a new creation where there is no suffering or evil or pain. The, the spirit right now in you, if you are in Christ, is creating order in you, is shining light and is making you beautiful. And that's why the New Testament not only will speak of Jesus as the temple or the tabernacle, but he'll, the New Testament will speak of us. We now are the tabernacle, the temple of God. We are the people that the world is supposed to look around and notice and see something different, see evidence of this new creation where God is doing something new so that they are intrigued and they want to come. And that means we have a sacred calling. We have a calling to reflect God. And so as I close, I want us just to consider these three things that we've considered. Consider our calling to be ordered. You know, when I'm talking about order, I'm not talking about making sure that we come to church on time. I'm not talking about making sure that we have a clear leadership pyramid. All those things are valuable and whatnot. But Augustine, I think, is right in saying the very heart of what order is for a Christian is that our loves are ordered. Order means that we love God with our heart and soul and mind and strength, that we worship God above everything else, and everything else kind of comes into focus after that. Order means seeking first the kingdom of God. And so we should ask, are we as a church who reflects that order? I'll tell you, I'm convinced that, that to be a Christian in America is one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. And it's not because of persecution. There are far more dangerous ways physically that people can experience in so many other countries. But in our country, it's not that it's too hard to be a Christian. It's that it is too easy. It's that we can feel like we can be a Christian and then hold on to everything else, to hold on to the American dream, to hold on to all these other priorities, to hold on to everything else, and our lives become utterly disordered because we forget that we belong to God and for him alone. Our calling as a church is to be ordered so that our deepest prayer is hallowed be your name, and that our lives, our calendars, our bank accounts, everything is ordered accordingly. We're called to order, and that's what the Spirit is doing in us. And we're called to be beautiful. And when we think of beauty, we oftentimes think of things like visual art and, and quality of music. And yes, those things are absolutely important. But I want to say there's even a deeper beauty that we are called to, a beauty that involves love, involves community. 
So last week, I saw something beautiful that continues in some ways to haunt me. Some of you might have seen all of the blue ribbons that are throughout Hinsdale and Western Springs. If you don't know, um, a child, actually our next door neighbor of 10 years old, after a year of fighting cancer, succumbed and died. And it was absolutely tragic. Um, but what was amazing this week, in the midst of tragedy, we were there for the you know, visitation. And it started at 3 o'clock. We were there just like a couple minutes after 3. And there already was a line out of the funeral home that went two blocks. They, they, you know, like one paper accounted maybe 2,000 different people all waited, sometimes for hours, to walk just so they could express their condolences to this family. And as we were there, there was just something beautiful about all of these people desiring together to show Love. It was the same thing that we saw as everyone came for the funeral the next day. People together as a community seeking to show love. That's beautiful. And you and I and we together have the ability to do something that the world rarely sees. To be a community who truly shows that love to each other. Not just being nice and not just being friendly to those who are like us but to being sacrificially committed to those who are different from us, those who might even sometimes get on our nerves, to be willing to walk with people through difficulty and pain, even when it's a burden to us. We are called to have the beauty of Christ's love that the world might see and recognize that something is different. And we're called to be a people of light. I mean, we've already said our world is in darkness, and it seems like it's getting darker and darker in terms of we probably have more information at our fingertips than ever before, and yet less wisdom and less truth than ever before. It's because truth is costly. It is costly to spend time trying to understand something deeply. It is costly to study God's word, even when we encounter passages like blueprints of the tabernacle, and to say, it is important enough for me to be filled with light, to know the truth, that I will persevere. It's costly when friends of ours in love confront us and tell us something that's hard to hear, and we allow ourselves to listen and recognize we've done something wrong and to change. It is costly to be a people of light, and yet it is also glorious. This is where the Spirit is taking to, to make us more and more a people of light. Our calling is to be a people of order, a people of beauty, a people of light, because our world needs this church and churches throughout the world to be tabernacles that truly show forth the glory of God that they might see. And so knowing that is our calling, knowing that we have a Savior who has died for us and begun in us this new creation, I invite you even now as we turn to the table and as we remember again what it means that we are God's covenant people, to take some moment asking God for help in this area, to acknowledge before him how we have failed to be those who have sought him first, to be people who love each other beautifully, to be people of light, to confess those sins and to turn to him. Would you please join with me spending time in confession and prayer, and then I'll lead us in just a little while.
Father, our desire is to be a people who show your glory. And our desire is to be a church that people can come in and recognize what you are doing and be filled with awe. Lord, we, we know how far we fall short. We know our own selfishness. We know the disorderedness of our heart. Lord, yet we know at the same time that your spirit is doing something remarkable in our souls. And we thank you for that, for that hope that you promised that the one who has begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And so, Lord, even as we acknowledge our sins and ask for forgiveness, we also give you thanks for your spirit. We ask that more and more he would do this work among us, that we would reflect your beauty, your order, and your light to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here again the good news of the gospel from Matthew 1. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.